Greetings and welcome to the Big 5D Podcast, a podcast all about helping small businesses in Africa and the Middle East transform their businesses through technology. I'm Charles Laughlin, I'm your host, and I'm also co-founder of Big 5 Digital, which is the producer of this podcast. So we've got a great episode today, and it features Tori Samples, and she's co-founder and CTO of Leaf Global Fintech. This is a relatively new company that's leveraging blockchain technology to offer a digital wallet to underserved populations in Africa, notably refugees, migrant workers, and small traders operating across borders. The company's based in Kigali and operates in Kenya, Rwanda, and Uganda with plans to expand further in Africa and perhaps beyond. So Tori and I get right into some of the more challenging and even uncomfortable questions that come up when you're talking to founders of an impact driven business. For example, can you scale a business that's built on a mission to help people rather than on a mission to make money? Are investors energized by the idea of investing in a business that's all about serving refugees? Or do they scoff at the idealism that's implied by the concept? So far, Leaf has succeeded in raising money from a variety of sources, from accelerators to competitions and grants, uh, plus some regular straight up investors. It's yet to do a formal growth equity round, but Tori acknowledged that that's going to be necessary uh, at some point in the near future. Uh, as notable as the impact-driven core of uh, LEAF is its use of blockchain, and we get into the role blockchain plays in LEAF's current success and future uh, opportunity, and also you know, how blockchain, uh, what role blockchain will play in the future of Africa FinTech. Tori is a uh, a data architect at heart, so she's uh, really into the tech side of the business. She's also a native of the U.S., as, a, as am I, <laughs> and uh, she's currently living in Kigali, and she uh, described a lifelong passion for helping refugee communities that sort of is at the heart of why she got into this business. Uh, but its uh, true origin is uh, she and her current business partner, Nat Robinson, actually uh, came up with this business idea as part of a competition from when they were in uh, grad school uh, at Vanderbilt University, which is in the United States. So we know you're really going to enjoy our conversation with Tori. She's really smart and very direct about uh, what's going on with her business, the opportunity, the challenges, and so on. It's a great conversation. Before we get to it, as usual, I have a few housekeeping matters to attend to with you. So please subscribe to our Substack newsletter. It's called the Africa SMME Tech Report. I know that rolls off the tongue, uh, but it says exactly what it is. Uh, we're hosting the podcast on uh, the Substack newsletter. We're also syndicating it through all the normal channels as well. We're trying to get about a weekly cadence with the podcast. We're close to that. And our pace of producing content generally for the Substack publication is, is accelerating. Uh, we, I'm pretty proud of what we've done with it so far. And we've just scratched the surface of what we're going to do with it. Uh, it is a paid subscription newsletter. However, there is a free version. Uh, so you can just go to the newsletter, put in your email, and that's all you have to do to get a free subscription. We will comp you a 30-day uh, paid subscription for every uh, free sign-up. And then after that, if you want to continue with the full version for $5 a month, you can do that. Or if you just want to keep the free version, you're welcome to do that too. There's no... You know, you don't lose your free subscription if you decline to upgrade to the paid version. So we want to build a large audience. We obviously want to monetize our hard work as well. So we're trying to uh, balance those considerations. So you can find us at, find the Substack newsletter at ctlaughlin, 
That's C-T-L-A-U-G-H-L-I-N.substack.com. Or just go to Google and type in Africa SMME Tech Report and you'll find it. We really would love it if you could support the Substack newsletter. Uh, it's really where we're putting our content efforts now. And the other thing I want to talk to you about is our plans to return to live events in 2022. Uh, we'd love to do it sooner, but we think that's a prudent plan to uh, return to live events with a full slate of events in 2022. And I have a specific date to announce, 16th through the 18th of May, 2022, in Cape Town, the Big Five Summit will return. We'll be back at the Workshop 17, which is the site of our original inaugural 2019 Big Five Summit, which got high marks from attendees and sponsors. And everyone was excited to do it again in 2020. And we all know why that didn't work out. So so we're really excited to be going back there. Uh, you know, the pandemic was an unwelcome event for all of us. Um, we pivoted to virtual events and we produced, I think, a couple of, I think, really great virtual events. And they were a lot of fun to do, to be honest. Um, there were some advantages from a production standpoint to doing them. But uh, as I've learned, and I think uh, many of you agree, there's no substitute for uh, waiting in line for coffee or a drink uh, and starting up a conversation with somebody uh, from another company, another country, another industry, whatever it is, uh, and exploring whether there's an opportunity for that conversation over coffee to lead to a partnership. Uh, that just is very hard to replicate in any other environment than a live event. Uh, so we're super excited to be getting back to that. Uh, I know a year seems like a f long ways away, but I guarantee you it will go quickly and we are going to work very hard to produce a creative, uh, effective event for our sponsors and for our delegates and, and our speakers and everyone who's involved. So if you want to talk about uh, Big Five events or anything about Big Five, shoot me a line at charles at bigfivedigital.org. I'd be th thrilled to get on a call with anyone to talk about events or any other ideas you have about Big Five or just curious to learn more about what we're doing and what we're all about so uh, please feel free to reach out to me anytime I'm a very accessible person uh, and I'm anxious to build more relationships and have more conversations and to keep learning and pushing this business forward great so let's move on to our conversation with Tori which I know you're going to enjoy thanks Okay, Tori, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. Great, great, here. great. Well, glad to have you. So, uh, talk to, uh, well, let's start at the beginning. Uh, you've, you're uh, CTO and co-founder of LEAF, right? Uh, FinTech Services, right? Um, and tell us, tell us what that is, but then I'd like to get more into the backstory a little bit, but just like give us the, the uh, you know, the cliche elevator pitch of what your company is and what its purpose is. Happy to. Yeah, so Leaf Global Fintech is a digital wallet that was built for refugees and migrants to help them store and transport money across borders. Doesn't even require a smartphone to work. It's currently live in East Africa and Rwanda, Kenya, and Uganda. And with that, it really anybody can store their money over time, send and receive with anybody on the Leaf system for free. They can exchange into different currencies and they can cash in and out from that wallet with any mobile money number in East Africa. So looking forward to expanding uh, into new countries and services sometime soon, uh, but that's where we started and really did start with that mission of refugees, migrants, 
expanded into cross-border traders. And then with COVID, um, we've seen the need for these types of digital cross-border services across basically all markets. Okay. Well, that last point is interesting and we'll get back to that. Um, okay. Okay. So, you know, ref- worldwide refugees and migrants, big issue. In fact, I'm seeing more and more companies start up around more around sort of the, uh, the migrant worker, uh, you know, banking issues with helping them get paid, et cetera. Uh, but you're focusing on refugees, which is kind of what caught my attention initially. What, uh, what, what led you to this as a, as a challenge? And then I'd like to get into sort of the mission versus commercial uh, issue of, you know, is a mission driven business also a scalable business and a, you know, a business that investors will find attractive. So talk about uh, sort of the original impetus for this and then why you think it's a business. Well, hopefully there is no versus in that sentence. Hopefully it's an impact driven business and a scalable business. But to get back into the, the story, the background of LEAF, uh, that's a lot of my personal background. It's, it's a passion of mine, and um, I've been in and around refugee communities in the U.S. for about the last 15 years, have, so have seen firsthand how this plays out. When you have a normal person in society who all of a sudden is forced to leave their assets, their money, their goods, their belongings, their family networks behind and go. And after seeing how people can get stuck in the cycle of poverty, um, it's just become very obvious to me that as much as I would love to support refugees with healthcare and education and everything else that they need, oftentimes the underlying need there is access to finance or just to be able to bring the money that they had with them um, when they go to a new country. So the backstory of LEAF as a business is that my co-founder, Nat Robinson, and I got paired on a pitch competition, business plan competition called the Holt Prize while we were in graduate school at Vanderbilt University. I was getting my MBA, Nat was getting his law degree, and we started digging into the refugee crisis and just saw how much of an opportunity is there. Um, as you said, some, some businesses have started to look into this as a viable market, but most of the time, once you apply that label to someone, they're all of a sudden not perceived as a customer or a consumer anymore that has willingness to pay, that has money behind them. And so- You mean the label have, refugee, to be clear. Mm-hmm. Okay. Exactly. Yep. And so we saw that there's a significant opportunity, um, especially for, for people that either were previously banked or are bankable. And so after, after a while, we started digging into this idea of a blockchain-based financial services platform for people moving across borders. And then that's when we started to see, as we started digging into the market, how many customer segments this actually applied to. Okay. So, yeah, there's, I'd love to get into in a bit sort of where this extends into uh, beyond sort of your original concept. But are there misconceptions about the financial wherewithal or the financial resources that refugees have? I mean, or is there a set of misconceptions that you're sort of working off of uh, as you build this business? Well, and I I appreciate you just calling it out for what it is. Uh, Many people will tiptoe around it. And and eventually we get to the point where we say, hey, banks banks will not serve refugees generally as a policy. This has been formalized in a lot of different ways, but it is often based on an underlying set of assumptions, which is that refugees don't have money and they don't have willingness to pay and they don't have identity documentation. Now, of course, all of those assumptions do have a kernel of truth in them, as most assumptions usually do. There are many refugees who face those issues, uh, but refugees are a very, very diverse group, and there is a spectrum of people included under that broad label. Mm -hmm. There are about 80 million displaced people, forcibly displaced people in the world today. It's about 1% of the world's population. 
And as you can imagine, if you took a random sampling of you know, people across the world and pulled 1%, you'd have all sorts of people in there. Right. And so the estimate is the banks are missing out on actually about 40% of the bankable markets in the countries that we operate in. And so a lot of those people are refugees or migrants, cross-border traders, people that fall into our target customer segments. And so um, we've done a lot of work finding out what the financial needs of refugees actually are, um, not, not just relying on a basis of academic and NGO research that um, sometimes doesn't show the, the commercial sector lens on that, mm-hmm. but have really dug into doing our own and then have built a product around this idea of offering affordable, accessible, convenient cross-border financial services to people who may or may not be device enabled with a smartphone. Okay. All right. So is this... Um... And your definition of refugees is that internal refugees, uh, you know, migrant. It's a broad one. I'll, I'll yeah, say yeah, that. Talk we're, about we're that just so we're clear. Yeah. yeah. And no, there's no checkbox on our platform that says, are you a refugee? Uh, we believe that part of serving people with dignity is mm-hmm. treating them like a customer who has choice and that we need to earn their choice um, every day with, with the services that we provide. Mm-hmm. So is there an inference, basically, basic, based on certain circumstances, so it's not are you or aren't you a refugee, but are, do you face these certain circumstances like you're exactly okay. yeah. yeah and and as I said, there are a lot of people on Leaf's platform today. We've got about five thousand customers right now in East Africa that are not refugees, but mm-hmm. for one circumstance or another, whether they're a small business owner, um, they're having trouble getting paid by their clients, or or yeah. whether they're a border trader um, needs to transact across countries and currencies. We've got a lot of people on the platform. Okay, well. Since I was direct with the previous question, I'll be direct with this one. Is the refugee label ultimately unhelpful to expanding the business? Um, can you talk about serving that community without calling it refugees? Is that name impairing yeah, in any way? it's a very interesting question. Um, and one, again, that I, I appreciate the directness. <laughs> so it's been interesting. I think that the refugee, the refugee story definitely helps attract interest and sometimes grant capital. Mm-hmm. But it also can serve as a deterrent to certain forms of investment. So mm-hmm. I wouldn't say that all VCs are turned off by that, um, but it definitely comes with a certain stigma to some. Mm-hmm. One of the things that we've been really, really passionate about from the beginning is making sure that we get the right people on our cap table, the right people on our board. And so finding investors that have an appetite for not just a comfort level with, but an appetite for working in emerging markets with a population that is generally overlooked and underestimated is very important to us. And so we've got, you know, we've got the blockchain side that comes with its own risk. We've got the refugee side. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, the storytelling aspect and making sure that we market ourselves appropriately, not just in terms of what we do, but who we are is very important to us. Okay. So talk about who has, um, so, so I can I can see like yeah a, a, just a you know, very sort of commercially driven VC maybe being a little wary of that but I can also see like a major like billionaire who wants to spend to invest his money in, in something that's mission driven being very I'm I could see a, a wide a spectrum of investors you know both being excited and perhaps uh, wary of this but talk about who has uh, can you talk about who has invested and what what their profile is or what can you share about that? Sure. So we've we've raised a mix of capital, um, mm-hmm. everything from accelerator programs, grants, uh, government agencies, investor capital, and so um, it's it's all over the board. Some of that is 
having to get creative during COVID, quite honestly. Sure, sure. Uh, sure. But but it's worked out for us. You know, we've been very thankful um, to do as well as we have during that time and, mm-hmm. and you know, with all those struggles. So yeah, I think one of the things that's been really interesting to us is that a lot of the blockchain and crypto investors don't seem to care as much about the the refugee label or stigma. Uh, For them, it's all about how can we increase network activity? How can we get blockchain into spaces that it hasn't been so far? And places like Africa that have high mobile penetration and um, currently an an untapped market for these types of services are really lucrative. And and we've seen that with some big deals on the continent within the last year, even during COVID. And so that's been encouraging to us to see that there are tech VCs out there that are on the cutting edge of the technology itself that really are fine with this market um, as well. And so that's that's been interesting to see. But I think, um, you know, for us, we we do tend to do pretty well on grants. Um, mm-hmm. So we just won um, a, a grant through the Stellar Seed Community Fund, um, which is the blockchain that we're right. currently based on. And so, mm-hmm. you know, anything like that is helpful to us in addition to, you know, your traditional raising of around. Okay. So, so I wanted to get to the blockchain aspect of this because it's actually very, very important. And uh, particularly for the, for the continent, I, I know DeFi is a big uh, topic of conversation now. There's a lot of talk about just globally, but also how that might be a really transformational in, um, in Africa. And, but talk about how blockchain kind of changes the game for financial inclusion. Could you kind of give us a little primer on that? Well, again, it's, it's the story and it's the reality, right? Mm-hmm. So you hear a lot of people talk about how blockchain is going to change the world and how it's going to change Africa in particular. And all of that has the potential to be true. Yeah. And none of that matters day to day if you're not out there doing it. Right. And so we are, you know, I'm, I am so proud that we are one of the few really that is out there doing it every day. Um, you see, this is Kigali, Rwanda behind me. Um, and, and we're live in three countries in East Africa and adding more within the coming months. And so I think that blockchain, when applied correctly, has significant potential to impact lives all over the continent. But the most important thing is that it be regulatory compliant um, or in each country that the company is operating in, and then also that it be accessible. So there need to be on and off ramps in order for this thing to work. You can't just hold an asset in in theory and have it mean something to your daily life, especially if you've sacrificed to get the asset there. Um, A lot of people don't have those long-term growth opportunities for their funds like we might in the U.S. and Europe. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's, you know, those are two things that we've really focused on is taking a pretty conservative regulatory approach. We use stable coins uh, that are fiat pegged and fiat backed so that we're not um, introducing volatility into the mix or putting our customers at risk. And then we also um, have integrated with the local domestic payment system. It's ubiquitous called mobile money uh, offered through the telcos in East Africa so that you can pay in and pay out of our wallet with any phone number. Um, you don't. The other person sending or receiving funds doesn't even have to have a leaf account. So again, trying to make that as accessible as possible to people in their daily lives on technology that they already have and trust. So your users, it they don't, doesn't matter to them or they don't care whether it's built on blockchain or any other thing. At all. Yeah, and yeah, we exactly. see that as a big I, know I there, would there imagine many that's people, critical. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Many people in Africa who are interested in blockchain, not saying that there aren't crypto enthusiasts of all course. over the continent. Um, but our users don't tend to care about how it works. They just want to know that it's reliable and it does work. Okay. So you mentioned regulatory and then obviously the, the, uh, using stable coins to 
uh, about <laughs> volatility is an interesting point as we're speaking. I'm, you know, uh, it's been a bit, the crypto market crashed, you know, in the last few days. I don't, does it impact you at all? How does that impact you? Uh, Thankfully talk about not. Yeah, it doesn't impact our, our customers. Um, right. There's a, yeah, a small minimum reserve that we keep of, of crypto just to make things easier behind the scenes, but not, not really. Um, thankfully, minimal impact on us. But I guess more um, in terms, I mean, my view is that, you know, it's markets have bear and bull markets and, you know, that's something you just deal with. But I don't know if there's any concern about, you know, the sort of confidence in crypto as a, um, as a, as a future platform for, for making all these things happen um, or whether investors will shy away from crypto at this point. Yeah, I don't know if there's I, any concern. I there. do think it's interesting. Um, there are certainly crypto skeptics that are using this as an opportunity to say, right. hey, we knew the bottom would fall out. And I don't know that, well, at the, that the bottom has totally fallen out. Um, I think we've seen a significant leak in there, but mm-hmm. um, but I'm hoping that you know that'll be repaired and it'll bounce back soon. So I tend to agree with you on the market perspective. Um, on the investor side, there are a lot of investors who have made a lot of money over the last six months um, just just by holding and investing in crypto. And so it was interesting, you know, right up until last week or the week before, um, we were hearing things like, you know, there are a lot of funds out there trying to deploy capital quickly because they want to get this out there before an event like last week happens. And so mm-hmm. still waiting the ramifications of that. I think everybody's being a little bit slow to do anything or to react um, in order not to cause further fallout, but I'm I'm confident that it will come back. Okay. Well, let's pivot to kind of uh, some other aspects of your business because our um, our core focus is tech for SMEs in Africa, Middle East. So obviously the refugee angle is very interesting. I, I think just as a sort of foundation and uh, what kind of this business going, but you have a, an ask, uh, you also work with like very micro SMEs and traders that are have to deal with cross-border payments. I thought it was interesting some of the challenges they face just in handling cash and how you're addressing some of those issues. So talk about kind of how you help these sort of very small traders, you know, with, with some of their challenges. Absolutely. Well, and that's, I think, an, again, an overlooked market that there's not a whole lot of research out there. People don't really understand the mechanics of it or the unit economics, how people are going about it today. And so that's that's an area where we've really uh, gone in deep to support this group. Estimates are that about 40% of, of people on the continent rely on cross-border trade for income in some way. So that's about 500 million people. Um, but most of that is in the informal sector. So these are people that are buying goods in one country, traveling across the border on foot, selling them in another country, getting cash, and then traveling back with cash. Um, And that proves very dangerous because not only are they carrying large amounts of cash, but they're crossing a few times a week. And so they're known to the border guards and easily taken advantage of on the road, at the border point, anywhere in between. Um, And there aren't digital solutions for these people. And so that's where we've really stepped in to say, again, can LEAF be the convenient, affordable solution for getting money across the border digitally so that you're not facing that physical security risk carrying cash, and then also making sure that it's very transparent on things like foreign exchange rates um, that provide a significant barrier to conducting business for people who don't have access to information. Um, We've seen so far that this is an absolute game changer um, in how somebody conducts their business. Usually these traders are very intelligent. They know their unit economics down to the 
penny equivalent. And, and they're looking for anything that will help them do business faster and cheaper. And so we've been able to step in with LEAF um, and provide those services. So not only are they paying their suppliers on the other side of the border, oftentimes in a different currency, but they can also do a direct pull request from their customers, um, even domestically, you know, around Kigali or wherever else, um, so that the customer doesn't have to, you know, send them the money, figure out how to do that on the local payment system, but the merchant can just do that directly from LEAF, even if the customer themselves doesn't have a LEAF account. Okay. So these are people who are, you know, they're crafts, they're buying agricultural products or buying raw materials or whatever Real, it is. Flour. Yep. Okay. And so they're, they're subject both to robbery and, and corruption, I guess, are the two things that are uh, threatening their, their cash. Mm -hmm. Is there a concern that if they stop carrying the cash, that the people who are expecting these payments will? Have you thought that angle of it through? Mm -hmm. Yep. Yeah, yeah. It's a great question, um, and and one that we have dug into, thankfully. So mm -hmm. what we've heard is that um, basically the amounts are so small, and the hassle of getting money from somebody who doesn't have cash on them is not worth it to so border guards wave. or whoever may yeah. be enforcing that mm -hmm. um, normal penalty or whatever we're going to call right. it. And so basically they'll just go on to the next person. Um, okay. And unfortunately they're likely to get it from them. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So um, talk about the barriers to adoption of your product. Um, let's focus on the business side. Cause again, that's more of our, our focus, but maybe you can talk about it more broadly. Typically there's, I mean, there's either, uh, physical barriers like having the right device, uh, cost barriers, psychological barriers. Talk about what, you know, what is your, comp is your competition a different habit? Um, just talk about what you have to overcome in order to get greater adoption. Uh, I think any new product in emerging markets, but definitely within East Africa, the number one or the first barrier you're going to face, I'll say, is trust. And we get that question all the time. How are you going to generate trust within refugee communities? Um, sorry, there's construction going on around me. So you find a bit of, <laughs> bit of Kigali construction. Um, but we, we get this question a lot. How are you going to generate trust within refugee communities or trader communities or difficult to reach communities? broadly. And that's where we've been able to rely on very strong existing word of mouth networks. This is something that we identified even before we built the product. It was one of the reasons that we wanted to serve this market, because if you can tap into those, these communities are extremely tight and they talk all the time. And so if you can get in, the growth patterns actually mimic digital viral growth patterns. And so we've been successful with that so far, but you know, layering in incentives like referral bonuses to grow the network, um, making sure that we have support available 24 seven um, because people still definitely have a preference for in-person high touch communication. And so the phone is still the number one way that people reach out to us. Um, mm -hmm. with, if you, you know, if you're pitching a, a VC, just say in the Bay Area and, and you say, well, yeah, I'm going to scale my business based on customer support, you know, phone based and in person, um, not exactly the best strategy, but it's realistic with what yeah. we've seen so far. And so we're, we're educating our customers as they come along the journey with us um, that to be comfortable with more digital support. Um, but there's, there's definitely a, a journey there. And so trust is a big one on the competition because you brought that up. I'd say biggest competition is just status quo, carrying cash. Um, there are fragments or 
pieces of our service that are touched by other players in the landscape. So, you know, we get asked about banks and mobile money a lot. And the short answer is they're both domestic solutions primarily. And so even if you've got a mobile money account, you can't really send across borders. It's not meant for storing large amounts of money over time. It's still quite expensive sending peer to peer. And so mm-hmm. we we're a big fan of mobile money systems. We've built on top of them. Every transaction into the Leaf Wallet requires coming through a mobile money account. So definitely not taking away from those businesses. But I think it's more a game of just differentiating ourselves and explaining succinctly to customers, investors, and partners how and why we're different and why this is a game, change, game changer in our customers' lives. Okay. Um, so what is your... Uh... What are your plans in the near term for raising more capital? Have you done a, like a formal A round or are you still well not, ahead? Not to this point. Yeah, we've, yeah. we were raising right before COVID, had a round put together, and then um, it fell apart first week of April of 2020. So, um, you know, name of the game during that time was really just survive and yeah. help yeah. other funds. And we've, we've been very thankful, uh, you know, that we've been able to do that through the Stellar Grant. Um, We got a a grant from the National Science Foundation in the U.S. um, through their SAR program. And so, you know, have done well on that. But yes, I think we're we're looking forward to getting back out there. Right, because all that that you just described is what gets a business, you know, up and running. But it's what to sustain a business you're going to need more, obviously. And and I imagine the the environment is... uh, improving in terms of being post COVID, but um, there's a lot of uh, payment solutions out there. And I don't know if that's uh, your biggest challenge with raising money or if it's the nature of what you're doing. Uh, You know, I don't, I'm not sure how you would describe the environment right now for, for raising money. I I think it's improving. Definitely. You know, as you mentioned, getting further outside of COVID, but then also um, just Africa being able to attract more capital. I think it have a couple it, of unicorns now to point to and right a couple. Yes. Yeah. Um, which is very exciting. Yeah. Um, and, and I think, you know, network effect, we all grow um, mm-hmm. through those. It's positive. So very, very excited for those and to see more investment capital coming to the continent. I think there's still significant disparities when you look at um, native founders, when you look at female founders. And so still a lot of structural challenges with that. Um, mm-hmm. In addition to the, there are a lot of payments, providers in Africa uh, comment. And so, you know, we try to differentiate by not just pointing to the market and technology, um, you know, the first blockchain based financial service for people without smartphones, that's exciting, but really on the ground day to day, what is the difference that we're making and how are we going to outpace and outgrow everybody else who's in this space? Yeah. Back to blockchain very quickly. Um, What is your perspective on, you know, are you the of the view that blockchain is the answer to everything. <laughs> in, 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 I mean, kind of put the, in perspective how important it's going to be and how dominant it will be over the, say, the next five to 10 years in terms of uh, the fintech market. It was around, you know, small, small consumer, small business. Well, and that, that last clause is key, right? Fintech, yeah. small consumer, small businesses. Um, there, there is no blanket answer for how blockchain will shape the world, at least not coming. No, I, did, I, I, don't, I have one opinion. <laughs> I wanted to ask a narrower question. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And yeah. I, and I think, so my, my professional background uh, before leaf, I'm a data architect, database yeah. designer. So I, I love going deep on these things. And, and I would say that, you know, it's, it's all about the use case and the technical fit. 
So if people can identify a strong use case, a need that needs to be solved, um, then at this point, there is probably a blockchain out there that will assist in doing that within the fintech space. Um, you know, thankfully, we've got so many solutions, so many protocols out there now that are designed to facilitate different things. And so I wouldn't be surprised if it becomes commonplace to at least look for a blockchain protocol that will, 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 that will aid and help in you know any new fintech but i also don't think that every new fintech needs to have a blockchain component um mm-hmm. you know at its best it is a component of the system maybe even a foundational component but it's never i mean for no fintech company is it the end all be all solution and so right. i think it's really about or the success is about um being able to determine where it fits within the tech stack what it does well how it can aid your business and how Potentially, it can help with the fundraising story or partnership development, business development, um, mm-hmm. depending on the landscape that you're in. Okay. All right. Last question is, um, how is the how are things in Kigali in terms of um, doing business, opening up post COVID? Are you are you working from home or in an office? How do you organize your your company uh, sort of in the post COVID world? You, just talk about you know doing business now and how it's changing and opening up. Well, I'll say from the start, Rwanda has been um, incredible in its response to COVID, very strong response from the very beginning. And so 100% mask mandate, um, curfew still, um, but that's kept rates low and people are safe and that's really all you can ask for. And so, um, you know, I'm so thankful that our customer base and our partners and, you know, everybody around our staff hasn't been more affected than they have. And so that's that's the first thing. Mm-hmm. And then on the business opening side, um, I think the biggest impact at first was the border crossings. Those were closed for a long time, especially to the small cross-border traders. Um, mm-hmm. And so, you know, those opening back up has been big um, and, and they're, they're still throttled, but life is definitely getting back to normal, at least on the Rwanda side. Um, mm-hmm. And and more so in Kenya and Uganda with some little blips, you know, for different spikes. But mm-hmm. um, one thing that I think is definitely true is that people have become more comfortable with digital payments. And right. so there was a 400% increase in mobile money accounts, uh, subscribers within Rwanda within the first three months after the start of COVID. And so, you know, the idea of storing money on your phone, using a a phone or any other type of technology to pay for things has become more commonplace, which has been a huge boost to our business because it does lower that trust barrier. And so that's been a big one. Um, And then just the physical atmosphere again, you know, it's, it feels very safe here, which I'm thankful for. And so we've been able to return to a lot of the in-person meetings. Um, Mm -hmm. I'm working from home today, but um, you know, we're able to go out and, and do that, which is definitely not something to take for granted. Right, great. Okay, last last question is: What is your ge- plans for geographic expansion? Is this business net by its nature an African business, or could it be an international business? How do you think about that? So there's a reason that the name is Leaf Global, Leaf Global FinTech, and yeah. we very much envision ourselves as a global company. So started in East Africa because of the proximity to some different conflict zones and the high mobile money penetration and comfort with some of those digital payments, but by no means exclusive to this area. And so we started with the countries that I mentioned, we're expanding um, hopefully soon into Tanzania, DRC, Congo, um, some others around the region branching out. 
but then also working on efforts to be able to cash in from Europe and to be able to do business in Latin America, um, where you see a lot of the same migration problems, financial services problems across borders, and no, no great solutions to fix those today. So very, very excited about that. Um, we'll, we'll keep you up to date as we get there and, and as we add on to the product base as well. Great. All right. Well, I think that's uh, about all the time we have. So I really appreciate you uh, filling us in on Leaf Global and uh, and the, the problems you're starting trying to solve. And uh, it's very exciting. So thanks again for joining us. Thanks for having me. All right. Great. Take care. Bye.